The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. So today, after Ricky and I chat about current events, we'll be listening to my interview with LA Council member Hugo Soto-Martinez. And good morning, Ricky. Uh, my producer is here, as always. How's it going? Hey, everyone. Good morning. How are you, Vic? I am doing great. Um, I'm uh, uh, excited to start the week. Um, after our our chat, I'm going to be interviewing LA's one of LA's newest council members uh, from District 13, uh, Council Member Hugo Soto Martinez. So stay tuned for that. But let's let's talk about some uh, current events and uh, headlines that, that are happening in the country, starting with, you know, it's unbelievable almost that that uh, we're sort of about to go into another presidential campaign. They used to be for about a year, just the year of the actual election. Now it starts the year before. So uh, it's starting to take shape. At least people are stepping up and, you know, we have uh, Governor of Florida, of course, uh, you know, President Trump said he's going to go in. Something uh, that Secretary Pompeo uh, and others, uh, and then also we have John Bolton, former you know cabinet member uh, for Trump um, Security. Yeah, what was his title? He was the he was the former White House. Oh, well, he was White House National Security Advisor, right? Uh, for for Trump, exactly. So he's he's kind of announced that he's going to run, but not for the best of reasons. Let's let's have you talk about that, because I think you're a little bit more um, sorry, you've been following this uh, more than I have. Yeah, he was on Good Morning Britain and uh, talked about many things, uh, including uh, the decline of the the Trump administration, his idea for the 2024 election and the idea that he would run if he feels the need to and mainly in part uh, for foreign policy. His interview on the show, he had a disturbing quote, at least for me. He said, quote, if I don't see stronger foreign policy, I'm going to seriously consider getting in. I think to be a presidential candidate, you can't just say I support the Constitution. You have to say I would oppose people who would undercut it. Now, this may not seem too definitive on the front layer. But what, what I read into that is this guy is looking to pick a fight, for lack of a better term. And I just don't like that idea. And and, and I know that it takes a lot to, to actually um, gear up to get into a conflict and, and things like that. But the idea of, of of this man kind of going into the White House with with that kind of stuff on his mind is is not kind of um, like George great. W. Bush, who was convinced, or or at least he was determined to find weapons weapons of mass destruction in Iraq so he could topple Saddam Hussein, another another military industrial complex repre representative in the White House. And then there's just the idea that. Um, you know the his his candidacy 
seems more out of spite than anything. It's not a a will to better this country or, you know, his heart doesn't seem in the right place. I just don't like that idea. And in terms of the the 2024 election as a whole, it's going to be a wild ride, man. What do you think, Vic? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Obviously, uh, there'll be a lot more action on the Republican side. Uh, then the Democrats, if if President Biden decides to run again, I don't think anyone else has a chance. You know, I just keep thinking he's going to step aside and let uh, Vice President Harris. Um, but who knows? I mean, who knows uh, what will happen? DNC will be a major deciding factor uh, on that end. Because the Republican Party, you know, after the 2016 election, uh, I have a hard time being 100% <laughs> absolute on anything. So uh, as much as, as I want to say Trump's chances are done, uh, you just don't know. I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, he obviously wants to run again. I don't know, you know, at, with with what we know now, January 6th committee, you know, we still have the Department of Justice trying to decide it's um, kind of unfathomable that he would want to run for president again. It's, it's almost like the Twilight Zone. Uh, and then we have, you know, another extremist Florida governor. We have Secretary Pompeo, who I think was was a pretty weak uh, Secretary of State. And, you know, there's also something to be said about these former, you know, former Trump um, cronies who now, you know, spite him or, you know, sort of uh, denounce him and all of that for good reason. But why Why did a lot of them stay? Why did a lot of them do his dirty work until they were fired or, you know, for whatever reason, they were no longer with them? So now that that ship sailed, <laughs> so now they're saying, oh, yeah, tr- Trump, the Trump administration was a disaster, which it was. Uh, but what happened to your principles then when you were sort of taking the paycheck and sort of just saying, yes, sir. So we'll see. Uh, a lot of it will shape, I think, in the next, not I don't, I mean, that's, yeah, in the next six months, a uh, lot of them will, uh, you know, something tells me there are a few more that are um, sort of keeping it under wraps. Um, I think the main reason, at least for me, why a lot of these former Trump cronies, um, the narratives and the and the rhetoric ha- has changed with them is because their careers are on the line. I mean, it it was to a point to where almost anyone associated with with Trump, there was they were almost labeled former Trump this former Trump that Trump exudes this like this negative connotation and anyone associated with him. If you think about it, his his daughter and his his son-in-law, you know, had pretty powerful positions in the White House, and no one thought they would have a political career after after his presidency. It just wasn't viable because that from 2016 to 2020, it it almost just didn't seem real. It seem seem serious. And I, so I think a lot for a lot of the the people that worked under him, uh, for them to be saying the things they are now is is really just a a defense mechanism to to save their own ass. Yeah, 
and, and cowardly. So yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Um, but hey, you're you're the sports guy. You know, I say that because uh, I'm I'm definitely, you know, I won't consider myself any kind of an expert in sports. But I even I saw the video of the football player that sort of just fell backwards uh, during a game, and we later learned that he had a cardiac arrest. Yeah, you know, it's it's just um, it's weird to see someone so young to have like a heart attack. Just you know, it just makes me think how much of it was really the pressure and intensity of what they have to do, um, you know, and how much of it is genetics and, you know, diet, et cetera. What do you think? Last Monday night, the uh, Buffalo Bills uh, had, had a game in Cincinnati against the Bengals and a player on the Bills, Damar Hamlin, the position he plays is safety. He's on the defensive side of the ball. He went to go make a tackle on a Bengals wide receiver, one T. Higgins, a pretty pretty standard tackle, which I think underlines how scary this sport can be and how things can change on a dime and how violent this sport is. He went to make the tackle, and pretty routine tackle. He stood up for about three seconds, looked a little wobbly, and proceeded to fall straight back down. And it wasn't it wasn't a pretty scene. And um, he did go into cardiac arrest. It was later uh, revealed by uh, doctors and team officials. And the broadcast, all this was in plain sight, and including Demar Hamlin receiving CPR. So the latest news on him is he he is in improving a breathe the breathing tube he was using has been removed. Um, he's in good spirits. He's uh, actually spoken with the team. So all, all all signs are pointing up. But I think this just reignites a larger issue in the sport in uh, terms of safety. And I do want to say that I, I love football. I'm not here. I'm not on a soapbox trying to villainize the league and stuff. You know, these are grown men who who make their own decisions. There's a lot of information available to these men who play the game. And, you know, they're professional athletes. They get paid money to do this. But that doesn't negate that uh, safety should always be on the forefront, on the mind of the NFL and the commissioner, Roger Goodell. And taking this as a, how can how can we improve the game, which they've done in the past decade. They've They've taken a lot of strides to uh, protect these players. And then the last little update, when DeMar Hamlin went down, that game was in the first quarter, and the game got postponed, as everyone probably already knows, and there was a lot of speculation as to whether or not the game would uh, be played at a different time, let, al- let alone resumed that night, um, which I think everyone is is glad the game didn't resume that night because there have been other scary injuries, players taken off the field in an ambulance uh, like DeMar, and the game resumed the, the same day or night. So this game didn't, and the NFL came out yesterday and announced that this game will not be, be played at all. They've put a plan in place um, in terms of the teams going forward and you know the records and kind of the the secondary stuff just 
hoping DeMar is okay because, you know, that's the real story. You know, whatever happens with these teams in terms of their playoff aspirations and, and things like that, that's kind of all secondary to this. Have they found out if maybe he had some sort of a genetic uh, makeup for the cardiac arrest or, or, or maybe it was the game itself that caused it, like the tackle? Is it too early to say? Yeah, all, all that stuff is definitely too early to say, and and there's there's a lot of been a lot of conjecture out there and stuff. But you would think, you know, this guy, I believe he's 24 years old, looks in tip top health. So it's really scary when you think of it that way. But doing the the some of the research myself, this could be almost like a an aberration type of freak type of accident when the heart's beating there's certain times your heart is 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 moving uh in particular places in your body and this could have just been a hit that was to the milliseconds of perfect timing that interrupted his heartbeat and you almost hope for that because you know you you don't you hope it's not genetic uh you hope it's not him getting you know an illegal hit or anything like that because as i said earlier it looked like a pretty standard tackle nothing really stood out about it so it's really just almost a a, an aberration unfortunately well we'll know i think we'll probably know the next few days it sounds like especially since he's already alert and talking uh, they must have some sort of an update soon so we'll uh Maybe we'll uh, cover it again next week. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll definitely talk about Demar Hamlin's status and just pulling for the guy because the notion that these guys are are just millionaires and just muscle ridden dudes and all that stuff, <laughs> you know, it, it may seem like that, but at the end of the day, you know, they're they're just people like me and you. Yes, you and have families and parents and siblings and friends and loved ones. So absolutely. Uh, best of luck to him. Now let's talk about something that I normally don't like to talk about it much because I think it already gets way too much attention. The British royal family. You know, I I'm aware that the 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 monarchy spends a lot of money on publicists here in the U.S. to keep their name in the news all the time because uh, tourism to Great Great Britain from the U.S. is massive, and so you know the the royal family works kind of like their it's like their PR toolbox. You know, they're like their de facto publicists um, for Great Britain. Um, but I do want to talk about them now uh, because of uh, Prince Harry's book, upcoming uh, autobiography that's coming out, and how blunt he is. And, you know, uh, someone may ask me why I believe him. I just do. My instincts say, I intuitively I think that Harry is telling the truth. Um, just having followed and learned as much as I know about the royal family's sort of background and tactics and this and that, and just comparing, you know, one story told from one person to the other, um, I believe him. I believe him. And of course, this latest revelation, an excerpt from the book, talks about uh, a confrontation where Prince William lunged at him, attacked him when they got into a fight uh, regarding Megan, you know, which is sort of 
really startling that um, this sort of thing is usually handled internally and you know denied and i'm sure the the palace hasn't as far as i know hasn't uh reacted yet but you know of course they're going to deny it they can they'll probably try to gaslight uh harry and such but you know to think that the future king of england england sort of attacked his brother and all of that it's just so uh, it's just so extreme but i can't help it i think i think uh when I watch Harry's interviews, when I hear him, he seems a lot more genuine than uh, the way Charles comes off or William comes off. I think it's a blank show, to be honest. <laughs> it's it's a pretty comical, and you know, I, I have I have massive respect for um, for the family and and stuff. But just like I was just talking about with NFL players and, and football guys, you know, they. They're in positions of power. They're they're humans. They have fights. You know, uh, hearing about this squabble between Prince Harry and and William, that it doesn't surprise me. The brothers. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I guess one way to look at it is, you know, at the end of the day, they're two brothers, and and these things happened. Uh, you know, they happen, and so there you have it. We'll see what the <laughs> fallout will be. You know, the the it sounds like. Um, the palace is uh, sort of taking their time to really put together some sort of a a response to um, Harry's, yes. you know, revelations. Or maybe they're just waiting for the book to come out. They can address everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, every, everything everything is so is so regal, and there's a, a veil for as long as I could remember. I mean, they really keep their their mouths shut. They don't they don't say a lot. So the fact that Harry is doing this. I think that's what makes this so comical because it's there's such a uh, dichotomy of like the the narratives. You got Harry just saying everything and anything and spilling the dirt, and then you got the palace just closed lip, not saying well, a word. Here's the thing, though. Harry's given a couple of interviews and he's talked about this. He says the way the palace handles it is. Uh, off the record, they talk to journalists and correspondents, and uh, they leak. So, you know, they leak whatever they want to leak to the press uh, in that. So it's a little bit more covert. So they're both really talking to the press. Harry is doing it <laughs> on the surface where the royal family or the rest of the royal family is doing it sort of covertly. I, I almost wish... Uh... You know, like the the White House, they have a a media a media person. I almost wish the palace had a had a media person. They do. Oh, they do. They do. Oh yeah, <laughs> Buckingham Palace has its own Clarence House, which the resident of the Prince of Wales now Williams. For years, it was it was uh, you know then Prince Charles's uh, resident. They have their own. A communications person and then Kensington Palace has its own so oh absolutely uh, <laughs> they have oh yeah they ha they're, it's a machine it's like it ran by a corporation they have communications people they have publicists handlers um, all kinds of um, uh, people and that's that's usually what happens is you have a communications person sort of talks to BBC or Daily Mail or somebody off the record hey you know, here's the info. 
don't quote us, but you can say, uh, according to an insider or palace insider or reliable source from uh, Buckingham Palace XYZ, and then they print it because, well, they feel safe because it, it was someone from the palace. So, but anywho, um, yeah, we'll see how this goes for Harry and Megan and the rest of them. Well, coming up next is my interview with uh, LA Council member Hugo Soto Martinez from District 13th. But uh, before we listen to my interview, let's take a short break. The Blunt Post with Vic. After a 16 year tenure with Unite Here Labor Union, Council member Hugo Soto Martinez was elected in November to represent LA's 13th district and has been in office since December 12th. The 13th district includes East Hollywood, Little Armenia, Town, Silver Lake, Echo Park, and several other communities. Good morning, Council Member Soto Martinez. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm doing well. It's a little chilly out, uh, you know, some forecast of rain, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, thank you so much for asking. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing great. Um, thank you for uh, doing this. Congratulations on being the, the new council member from District 13. <laughs> thank you so much. You know, I've, I've been saying this for a while, but every four years, you know, not counting midterm elections, but every four years when we do presidential election, it seems like, at least in my adult life, we've always said this is the most important uh, election of our lifetime. And it seems like it just repeats every four years. I believe that this last November's election for LA, LA County, LA City, uh, was probably the most important one uh, in my adult life that I can remember, you know, and it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure. What is your perspective looking back on where we are um, as a city, the state of our city, the state of your specific district, District 13. Uh, for those listening, District 13 is very large. It starts sort of like East Hollywood on the border of West Hollywood, goes all the way to Echo Park, Silver Lake, Atwater Village, Glasgow Park, Thai Town, Little Armenia, and several more cities and neighborhoods. So what's your perspective on where we are as a city and the district that you are now in charge of? Yeah, you know, actually, I agree with you about, I know we say that sometimes it's sort of a cliche or, you know, but I actually do agree with you. Um, a lot of the folks I worked with kept saying, this is 1994 again, right? Some of the elders that I've worked with, this is 1994 again, this is 1994 again. It's the, the, the year that uh, uh, we got a, a Republican uh, mayor, right, here in the city of Los Angeles. Um, and so, uh, Reardon, right? Uh, Richard Reardon, Reardon. yeah. And so um, I was like, oh, so there was like a reactionary backlash that was like Pete brought in Pete Wilson, Prop 187, Prop 209, right? Some of the very uh, anti-immigrant legislation across the state for California. And so people were saying that as we were coming here. And I, and I was I was uh, very young at the time. And so for as an adult, definitely has felt that way. But I think it really started, um, uh, things were put into place with, uh, with Trump being elected in 2016 and, and, and Bernie in 2015 and all the energy that was put around. And it felt like those two movements came to a head this election, right? Uh, we saw in New York, uh, you know, it, more, it, turned, it turned more conservative and then it was happening here. We saw people drumming the, uh, you know, about crime increasing and inflation and the gas was going up and housing and homelessness. It felt like so many things 
were sort of uh, agitating people, and there was a, a, a absolute fear that it could we could turn right, right? Like a, a city, the second city of Los Angeles, following after New York. And so for to me, and for a lot of people that ran in the city of Los Angeles, it did feel like we had to really confront that right-wing rhetoric that was happening. And you know, the, the thing that I gotta say is that, that we won. Progressives won, and we won big. Uh, yeah. And so it, it did feel like that sort of urgency and importance. And now it is, is even more important because it's sort of ushering a, it could usher in a, a very progressive, uh, you know, uh, future for us. So, so yeah, I actually, I actually completely agree with it was the most important election. Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely mobilized. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with LA Council Member Hugo Soto Martinez. Um, speaking of progressives and 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 massive changes, of course, Congresswoman Karen Bass, now Mayor. Bass of Los Angeles has, um, you know, one of the top things on her list, as well as many others, has been uh, the unhoused, you know, uh, aka homeless, a challenge in LA, which I think, I think most people agree that it's not really an LA challenge or California challenge. It's really a national, broader national challenge of uh, inequity, um, disintegration of middle class, not having good healthcare system for uh, mental illness, etc. But either way, we in LA, we you know we have this uh, massive unhoused population, and she's sort of taken the the you know the bull by the horn, if you will, in trying to tackle this uh, very aggressively. Uh, how do you feel about uh, her initiatives? Uh, sort of her jump start. I think it's too early to judge anything, but just the way she started. And are those in line with your plans as, you know, you have laid out a pretty uh, specific plan yourself? I think what she's doing is absolutely the right thing to do. I, I applaud her for her courage. You know, LA County and LA City is such a complicated area. Uh, you have the county, which stretches from Pomona all the way to Simi Valley, right? And within that county, you have 88 cities, uh, LA City being the largest. Uh, and then within LA City, you have 15 council members that have a ton of discretion over uh, you know, what they do in their district. So we have 15, essentially 15 mini mayors. And that's what's, and then you add all the things that you mentioned that are really cre creating this uh, inflow of, of, of homelessness, right? Large, deep systemic issues. And the mayor is saying, this is my issue. I will put this on my back. I am putting my credibility and accountability on me. And that has never happened uh, in, in, the, in the region. And, and that takes a lot of courage. And, you know, and she's coming with, um, with what I think is, is the correct plan, right? Her, her Inside Safe plan is something that we talked a lot about on the campaign trail. Uh, you know, the way we're going to get out of this is by building housing. But building housing takes time. And, and she's working on that to streamline the, the the process for affordable housing, right? To make it more, to make it faster, right? To build. But in the meantime, right, we're going to be using uh, underutilized, vacant uh, hotels and motels and other, and, and you know, to, to make sure we house people for now. We know that's not the permanent solution, right? Because housing is a human right. People should have a roof over their head uh, on, a, on a permanent basis. But for now, I think that is the right solution. And uh, you know, and, and I completely support her and what she's trying to do. I think it's very brave of her. And we got to make sure that she's successful because if she's successful, we're all going to be successful. I like that. 
And what a good place to be as a new council member to be in line with the new mayor, uh, especially on, you know, what I think, and it's not what I, th I mean, it's just kind of been the fact that housing has really been the top priority uh, or was in this last election. Um, so thank you for that. Now let's talk about you and your initiatives, uh, more specific to uh, District 13. Uh, District 13 is unique, kind of like West Hollywood, where you know you are sort of like in the crossroads of all these people who are commuting, crossing it, north, south, east, west, to get to downtown, to get to Hollywood, West Hollywood, go to the valley, etc. Uh, and you've already sort of initiated many different options to really um, reduce traffic, increase safety, if you will. I want to let you sort of talk about your initiative for that. You know, we've done a lot of this work. Uh, you mentioned West Hollywood. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work in West Hollywood uh, over the years. I've run a, helped elect a lot of the folks there. Uh, so I'm very familiar with a city that is a small city, right? That is very progressive. I think they have the highest minimum wage in the country at this point. But that was done because we engaged the community. We did door knocking. We build relationships with progressive organizations, and we really started a lot of that work at the grassroots level. Now it's easier to do in a smaller city like WeHo, but you know we could do that in our district. We could do that by using uh, the chair, the positions we have. You know, luckily I, I I'm the vice chair of the Economic and Jobs Committee alongside Kern Price, who has been a champion on all of uh, working class issues. And so I think when we look at trying to pass, you know, worker protections, whether that's they don't make their they don't get their wages stolen make sure that they have good transit or the sidewalks are repaired or, 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 or tenant protections. Those are all things that we can do here in the city. But because the scale is larger than some of the smaller cities, it's going to require folks to get involved, uh, be part of the political process, right? I think our campaign was not just about electing the right person, but also recognizing that that power, the power that an elected has comes from the grassroots. When people are engaged and active and they're, whether you live in the district or not, you're, you're, you're door knocking, you're, you're demanding more. Uh, that's what really pushes uh, progressive policies. And so, you know, we have a, a vision uh, that our, 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 you know, our mouths are bigger than our, than our stomachs, but that's good, right? Because I think we have to have that, that uh, sort of a mindset when we're approaching all these issues of the city. So, but yeah, I think all those things, uh, I think are on the table for us right now. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami. And you are listening to my interview with LA Council Member Hugo Soto Martinez. Yeah, I mean, you were with uh, Unite Here, a labor union for 16 years, and Unite Here has done an incredible job, especially in West Hollywood, uh, fighting for workers, especially hospitality workers. And of course, West Hollywood did last year pass the highest minimum rate uh, wage in the nation, which, you know, I think everyone should just follow suit because <laughs> I was reading it. I was reading an article last year. I think I was, I was on Twitter. It was like Huffington Post or something uh, where they did a study and realized that if you're making minimum wage, you cannot afford a one bedroom apartment to rent in any of the 50 states. Just can't. Yeah, it's insane. It's, it's insane. Yes. I mean, so, it's um, you know, it's a, it's a big, a big win for progressives. I also wanted to add to to ask you about the you know your connector program, your for traffic and such uh, in the in your district um, where you know traffic is becoming increasingly uh, challenging. 
are things starting to move on that? Because I know you've been very aggressive to try to tackle that. Our first day in council, we submitted a, our, our first motion was to instruct uh, DOT uh, and Bureau of Street Services to really address what I say are, are, are pretty heavy transportation issues, whether that's dangerous intersections, which people don't want to walk because, you know, we're likely to get hurt. We have a lot of those in the district, uh, broken sidewalks. You know, we often forget that the, one of the modes of transportation is walking. Uh, and that's that's good for the elderly, folks with disabilities. Uh, we identified, you know, streets that could take bus lanes uh, and protected bike lanes, you know, using our infrastructure that we have, but in a way that's not car dominant, right? Uh, that's what leads to traffic, what leads to the city having the worst air pollution of any major city in the United States. We're ranked last, literally last. And of course, it's just better for you. I took the metro today. Uh, I got my steps in. I, I read my I read a book. Uh, you know, I got here just around right around the same time. Uh, and we have to recognize that most commutes uh, in the city aren't very long. Uh, my commute was five miles. Right, it, it, I'm taking a car for a five mile commute. So building those uh, options, whether it's walking, busing, or biking, or light rail, giving people those options is important. And so we have to make accessible, uh, frequent, uh, enjoyable, right? And so we have to head in that direction. And, and if we do all those things, uh, you know, we can have a, a world-class transit system that people will enjoy. Uh, people should not have to dread, you know, trying to figure out how to get on public transportation. It should be easy for folks. And we'll see people moving away into, into, into that mode and not in their cars. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And it's uh, increasingly people are mindful of that. Um, as alternates in LA rather than uh, driving. So I want to talk about something that's uh, that affects, well, I think, you know, it's a human rights issue really at the bottom, you know, sort of like as a whole, but uh, of course it, it affects a portion of your constituents. You have a large Armenian community in your district. Uh, your district also includes little Armenia. And, you know, you recently, um, released a statement regarding what's happening in Artsakh, the blockade of Artsakh to Armenia by Azerbaijan. Uh, it's day 24 of 120,000 Armenians are literally cut off from the rest of the world, running yeah. out of food, yeah. medicine. Thank you for your statement. Uh, that was, I, what I appreciated most was that you, you didn't use generic and safe words. Uh, you know, you just called it out the way it was. Just for those who are listening who may not have read it, you know, what's your stance on what's happening halfway around the world? Yeah, you know, the the, the issue of immigration is is one that is very near and dear to me. I mean, my parents migrated here. The district is, you know, the most uh, diverse district, and so you know, we we got to call it what it is. Uh, this is a humanitarian crisis. This is a, a human rights crisis. This is about a a democracy that is at is being attacked by a, a ruthless leader, you know, and 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 when when I think about this, um, I think about how me growing up, you know, there are systems of power that that oppress people, and so in that moment, you just have to call it what it is, and uh, you know, we'll continue to do that. Uh, but we are, you know, we are going to take the leadership of of Pakakorian. He's he's an Armenian leader in the city council. Um, we happen to have a large Armenian community, and. You know, I applaud his 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 leadership on on this issue. Um, you know, and he, and he's you know him and I have spoken, and he says you know this is not just about um, uh, you know an an eth 
the issue. It shouldn't be viewed in such a uh, in such a small frame. This is about a human crisis, a humanitarian crisis, about about a ruthless leader trying to hurt people, and so we have to make that a much broader moral fight. Uh, you know, and, and so we have to just find ways to, to make it a, a lot bigger. And, you know, I'm glad the mayor got involved. Uh, you know, her connections to D.C. are already giving yeah. fruit. Uh, and uh, and that was the right thing. And, and I'll continue to follow the lead of uh, Paul Kikorian, uh, our council president. Uh, and, and of course, from the community, because at the end of the day, we're here to serve the community, not, not the other way around. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami. And you are listening to my interview with LA Council member Hugo Soto Martinez. I appreciate that. I appreciate the, you know, your wording. You're not sort of um, mincing words, uh, and and you're really up to date on what's happening. So <laughs> it's really refreshing, believe me, as as an Armenian American, for witnessing the, and you know, a lot of it has to do with, with the media not covering it. There are so many people that are in the dark. So um, thank you for that. Going back to District 13, uh, you know, I brought up a few initiatives and uh, some of your more your priorities in terms of tackling things, but I'm sure I've missed uh, a few. What are like maybe three, four, five of your top priorities in District 13, aside from, you know, unhoused? Yeah, so this is a again a very unique uh, district, right? There's a large Armenian community, Filipino community, Central American, Mexican, Bangladeshi community, a Thai community, and so it's a district. But if you look at the composition, it's it's, it's vastly changing. And what what cuts through, regardless of which group you belong to, is that they're all facing the same issues. Uh, the cost of living and affordability in this issue is hurting working people. It's hurting immigrants. It's hurt. It's hurting those communities, and so we really have to think about how we create housing that actually people can actually afford. People should not be moving to Palmdale, uh, you know, uh, Victorville, right? To commute into that is bad for the families, bad for the environment. It's it's should people should be able to live, work, and play in the city, and so we really have to make sure that kind of housing exists. Very closely tied to that is is tenant protections. People who live here, let's protect them. Let's make sure that they're not being pushed out. Uh, we have landlords with very terrible tactics, pushing people out, harassing them, not fixing the apartments, making the places uninhabitable, offering cash for keys. Uh, you know, these sort of, and and so that that's something we, we could do. The city could do a large role in that. Of course, I'm a big union person. Uh, nothing changes a people's person's life than having a union. And so... Using our position, uh, making sure people have, number one, protection so they don't get fired at will, uh, that they have a good wage, that they have health care, that their employer provides health care. And through that process, many workers find their own power and their own voice to continue to stand up on other issues. I've seen this happen so many other times. And of course, we talked about uh, transit and how that sort of um, is connected to climate crisis and uh, you know, the climate its own could have so many issues we can think about, like electrification of buildings, building more community gardens, uh, green spaces, uh, things like that. So I would say there's, there's so many things, but uh, I would put all those sort of four and five as some of the most urgent things. You know, the things we the things we campaigned about, campaigned on. Piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I, I, I look forward to, uh, you know, I was like, I was talking to my friend yesterday. He was like, you know, you're going to do a second term? I was like, yeah, I'll do a second term. And he's like, 
what about third? I was like, well, we'll see about the third. I was hopefully we can, but of course, uh, I was like, look, the thing I told him was like, we got to solve as many issues as we can. And, and that takes three terms and then we'll do it, you know? So, but yeah, a lot of work to do. I like, I like that the word union is back into conversations. I'm hearing it more. I remember this slogan I read, uh, work union, live better. That's right. That's you know, right. I, it's, it's been too long since unions have showed some, some, uh, you know, muscles, you know, and I mean that in a good way. So it's, it's good to know that people like you are winning and out there and fighting the good fight. Council member, before we go, I know you're, you're short with time. Is there a question I should have asked that I missed? Is there something you'd like to add? Yeah, I think that sort of piggybacking off of the, the way we started this conversation about how hopeful, how important this election was, you know, one of the big victories we got was uh, Measure ULA. You know, there's a lawsuit right now, the, the Harvest uh, Jarvis Foundation and the you know, Apartment Association are uh, filing a lawsuit. You know, we, we feel it's going to get overturned. But, but that passing was monumental. Right. It's going to put between 600 million and 1.1 billion dollars into into funding for rental relief, uh, tenant protections, and my favorite, uh, the building of social housing. Right, we haven't built so enough social housing in the city in a very long time, and so when we talk, when we look at other cities, uh, you know, other major cities, you know. The, it, housing is not something that's viewed as for profit. Uh, it, it's 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 given by the government. It's 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 not the way you know. And it's good housing, right? So as we have that money, make sure that we use it correctly, uh, and build housing that that you know it's not exploitative. That it's not uh, gouging folks. It's not owned by corporations, uh, as as is seventy percent of the housing stock in the city right now. And so I think if we really tackle at that route you know, we can have some massive changes in the city and, and it's going to be up to us to make sure that that gets implemented. Uh, the law passed, but how it's processed and how it's done is going to be left to uh, the 15 council members that are sitting here. So we got to make sure that it's done the right way. Absolutely. That was a huge win. And if you're listening, things take time. <laughs> so, doesn't happen in a few months. It happens in a few years. It has to, uh, you know, it, it, it takes time and, uh, Sometimes we want our elected officials to just take out the magic wand, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, Councilman uh, Soto Martinez, thank you for being on the show. Good luck, although I don't think you need it. <laughs> thank you uh, so much. Until we hopefully uh, chat again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me and uh, stay safe, everyone. That was my interview with Councilmember Hugo Soto Martinez from LA's uh, District 13. Uh, thank you very much, Councilmember. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Uh, and I hope to chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.